This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcast. Now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. What do we got today, Tommy? Well, today we're looking back at an expression and some examples of that expression dating all the way back. Believe it or not, the expression dates back to the Roman times when uh, the Roman Senate declared Emperor Nero a hostis publicus, which is basically a public enemy. So we're looking at like, some of the history of some of the public enemies, particularly during the Great Depression period, right? Roaring 20s, yep. Great Depression. These people, which are basically uh, public enemy, which is like a term to describe individuals, that activities were seen as criminal, but also damaging society, right? So they're like highwaymen, bandits, mobsters, similar outlaws to that. Some of these names sound familiar. Other ones, maybe not, but definitely names that are going to ring a bell. And once that during the time where like Islamists, people knew who they were. It was like a pretty common thing to know who like public enemy number one was. Like people when yeah. they got their news, it was they were aware of this. Yeah, and actually the public enemy aspect, that became a term that was officially kind of used by the new Federal Bureau of Investigation. And FBI's been around for a little bit, but kind of was reworked, I guess, in the 1920s under the toolage of a new director, J. Edgar Hoover. And he kind of takes this Bureau investigation, solidifies it as the federal crime fighting unit. Um, and actually, they get the name G-Man from one of the criminals that says at one point, like, don't shoot G-Man. G-Man meaning government men. Yeah. And that kind of sticks with it. And they become known as government men or simply G-Man. But to historians and everybody else, they're simply known as the FBI or Federal Bureau of Investigation. Prior to that, they were known as Bureau of Investigation. It wasn't until late 20s when Jagger Hoover comes in and it is rebranded as this like new crime fighting force for the federal government. But what we're really talking about today is or rather are the first real public enemies in the United States. There's definitely a big crime wave that's happening, particularly in the Midwest during this time. We've all heard of Al Capone and Chicago and various rise of crime. And, you know, Al Capone was considered one of the first public enemies. But the real beginning of her public enemy and the real beginning of the FBI really starts in the Midwest with bank robberies, not necessarily the organized crime, the you know, the gangster era of Chicago that you may think of, which really all of this stems from prohibition. And then there's yeah, further in the Great Depression. Yeah. And the Great Depression. Because of the poverty, right? Unemployment. There was like a lot of opportunities for criminal activity, like bootlegging, right? Because of the 18th Amendment, right? You have, uh, you know, people started robbing banks as loan sharks, you know, murder becomes pretty big. And there was a huge increase in crime. And I feel like nowadays it kind of gets, I wouldn't say, I guess almost like glorified, like people look back at it, but it was not like a fun, to be involved in this, I don't think it was like a fun time. You know what I mean? No, like yeah. Back to those like old, like, you know, like the Godfather movies and stuff like that. And, you know, that whole lifestyle gets kind of glamorized, which... You know, if you actually read about these people's lives, it definitely wasn't one that you would no, want to yeah. get involved in. And but, you know, good thing you mentioned, too, because Hollywood really looked at this, even in 1930s, glamorized this whole thing. And, and that's what really oh, yeah. upset J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI. He's movie, He's, yeah, well, the movie Public Enemy comes out in 1931. Yep. And they kind of said that they kind of depicted these gangsters and stuff as like self-made men and they're surviving in tough economic times. They're like, no, they're they're criminals. They're breaking the law. They're you know going against the norms of society. They're killing people. Right. And but they're being kind of like, you know, glorified. And he's like, this is not what this is not going to help, you know. Right. 
So after the movie comes out, The Public Enemy, released in Hollywood, 1931, uh, 1931 is kind of the, the year of change here. It's like the cusp here because Public Enemy comes out and really popularizes the term of public enemy, meaning, you know, these gangsters, champions of individualism. But at the same time, in 1931 is when you have Al Capone, one of the most famous real life gangsters, is locked up for tax evasion, right? Same year, um, he spends the rest of the decade in federal prison and then prohibition ends Basically, comes to, yeah. and when that ends, naturally, you think that was kind of like we always talk, you know, prohibition like create a lot of opportunities like for gangsters, gangsters like, yeah. and it did. But when it ends, these gangsters don't just go back and like, all right, well, now it's legal, I'll just open up a bar or something. It didn't work that way, so now that's legal, they're not going to get as much money from bootlegging, so they're just going to find other things, they're going to go back to like what they call like their old standbys, right? Which was gambling, prostitution, you know, um, drug trafficking, some of them labor racketeering, being loan sharks. So, like, crime actually was going to increase a bit more after this because now they're going back to, like, some more violent crimes they were doing before. There wasn't as much money to be made. But really what starts to make the FBI more powerful and what starts to get the FBI to do a lot more when it comes to organized crime was the kidnapping and murder of um, Charles Lindbergh's son, right? Yep. Which, go back in our archives. That was one of the first ones that we did, right? The Lindbergh yep, baby kidnapping. And that just really gave this, like, People like, man, what's going on during this time period? If like someone as famous and Charles Lindbergh was like probably the most famous person in the country, if his son gets kidnapped from his bed at night, right, and later they find him dead, this is this unlawlessness. Like, what's going on? So they actually passed laws in 1932 called the uh, Lindbergh Law, which really gave the FBI more power and put J. Edgar Hoover in charge. So now it's more powerful and has like this like really intense person, J. Edgar Hoover, which we never did. We ever do a no, but we should. On it? No, we should. we should definitely look into him a bit more. He's got a very interesting life. You ever watched a movie with Leonardo DiCaprio? Kind of explores that quite yep. a bit. He's going after the mafia big time, right? He's going after them, and then this is when too you're going to start seeing like the the, the laws going after these people. And you're going to have like this whole idea: of good guys, bad guys, cops and robbers, right? Who a kid hasn't played yep. that game, right? This is where that comes out from, you know. Yeah, and this is where you have the term really kind of what brought us to this podcast, which is public enemies and the G-Man. You know, like that was the the real thing here. And this was in newspapers. There's comic books about this. Like at the oh, time, yeah. this became like this big manhunt, like public enemies versus G-Man. It was, real, it was real life, but it was also pop culture at the same time. Yeah. Let us look at some of these colorful figures, right, that became the public, the first public enemies in the United States. And there are some that are more popular than others. Uh, John Dillinger is probably the main guy. He kind of starts and popularizes. He becomes the first public enemy number one during this time period. Then you have Charles Pretty Boy Floyd, George Machine Gun Kelly, and the infamous... All right. There's also Babyface Nelson, I think we'll mention that. All these people are somehow connected through these basically wave of bank robberies, murders, and just crimes across the country uh, that are front page news in 1930s. They're you know commonly known as the Great Depression crime wave of the Midwest. It's almost like people are following like who's who was captured, who was killed, who's the new public enemy number one. It starts with John Dillinger. Yeah, so basically he was a gangster, right, during the Great yep. Depression. Um, he led the Dillinger gang. That's what they were known yeah. as. And he was accused of robbing 24 banks and four police stations. Actually, robbed police stations. Know, like. Kind of ballsy. Yeah. Right? Um, so he was uh, captured a couple times. He escaped from prison twice. And um, he was charged with eventually murder of a police officer. during. It was the only time he's actually charged with a homicide. But the media ran a lot of these. We were talking about him, how he was like brave and his colorful personality. If you look at like his mugshot, too, he's got like this smirk on his face. You know, this he had charisma, whatever you want to call yeah. it. He had a colorful personality. And the media kind of cast him as like a modern day Robin Hood. You know, yeah. and this is like we said before, really infuriated Jagger Hoover. And they did this like whole campaign 
to really evolve the Federal Bureau of Investigation to more like sophisticated techniques and weapons to again to organize crimes where they start and like run known associates, fingerprinting, things like that. And he actually evades police for um, in four states for almost a year. And uh, yeah. they eventually found him. I guess you want, you want to get into that. What happened? Well, yeah, I mean, and it, but even to go back to this idea of like him being the Robin Hood, I mean, at one point he was robbing a bank and as he went to the teller and he's trying to say, give me all your money. And the teller starts like taking out the money and he goes, is this your money or is this the bank's money? And he's like, the teller's like, it's my money. He's like, no, I don't want your money. We don't want your money. We only want the bank's money. And that gets into the newspapers. And again, this is the Great Depression where yeah. people, there's the haves and the have nots, right? And all of a sudden the banks are the bad guys. People had money. Money in their banks and they lost it all so they don't trust them yeah yeah right so and it's, it was almost like the, the fact that he said that that made it to the newspaper like no he's the real robin hood like he's he's a good guy and first of all when he's in prison he's a huge baseball player i don't know if you saw this right he was really good at baseball and that's kind of how he wound up getting from one prison to another because he was so good at baseball playing at the prison team that he's like oh um I, you know, there's a better baseball team at this other prison. Can I go to that one? But really, he had accomplices in the other, in the other one. So yeah, and he used his personality, like we said before. Exactly. Was able to, you know, people, even the guards, like wanted to like him. Yep. And stuff so he like winds up moving while he's there. And this one, his one escape is very infamous. That's when he carves a wooden gun, then uses black shoe polish to make it black and he uses that against his guards and basically convinces them that he's got a real gun and that's one of the, like the most famous or rather infamous times that he winds up escaping from prison after he escapes from prison and he, you know he goes on this spree of just just robbing banks they wind up shooting people but what's kind of cool here not cool but crazy rather is that every time he commits a crime he commits the crime in a different state so there's various different state police agencies that want to catch him. Yeah, they um, all want credit, so they're not necessarily working together at this point. Exactly. They're yeah. all kind of just like, so when he's captured one time, because he goes to jail a few times, but the one time he is captured, all of a sudden you have this big like wrestling match of like which state wants to persecute him for what. What his big mistake is, at one point, he winds up stealing a car. And he's, after he steals that car, I think it's a police car, you But after he steals the car in one of his escapes, he crosses state lines. And boom, at that point, he is now under the jurisdiction of Federal Bureau of Investigation. Because prior to that, all these bank robberies kind of fell into jurisdiction of each state. But once he crossed a state border with a stolen car, that's when the FBI and the G-men get involved, the government men, you know, and they're like, all right, it's game. And they label him public enemy number one all over newspapers. So Dillinger becomes kind of famous and known, which leads to him having, uh, he has a plastic surgery done. Like you see this in yeah. movies all the time, but this guy does this in the thirties. He tries to change his facial appearance. That's what he wanted. Did he ever actually get it? I don't know if he did. He, he did. He, he got it. And it didn't really done. change him that much. Yeah. It like moved his dimple and like chin or something like that. But the way he's caught, it's that's also an interesting story in itself. There is one. Do you remember the woman's name? I know she was from Romania. The girl's name was eventually changed. She was Anna Sage, but initially Anna Companius or whatever, but then eventually yeah. became Anna Sage. She's Romanian and she turned to a life of prostitution, so on and so forth. And he knows her and friends with his girlfriend, but he's also he kind of has a thing with her as well and uh, she also has an affair or is having an affair with a police officer at the same time she's having an affair with dillinger who's kind of in hiding they can't find him yeah naturalization service is basically saying she's an alien of low moral character so they're trying to deport her so because she doesn't want to be deported she's kind of upset and starts telling her 
like police boyfriend that she's going to get deported. And then he winds up getting her in touch with the FBI agent, Melvin Purvis, who's like the main guy chasing Dillinger. And they get together and basically she's like, well, we always go to the movies, so I could let you know when we go to the movies. And that's kind of what they do is return for not being deported, turns them in. Yeah, this happens at a movie theater. July 22nd, 5 p.m., John Dillinger goes to the movies with these two women. And as he gets out, the whole movie theater, every street is surrounded by uh, G-Man. So at one point, Agent Purvis yells, stick him up, Johnny. We have you surrounded. Dillinger starts running gets shot like four times one goes through like his back of his neck comes out through his cheek uh needless to say he is killed he's shot four times and he still there's a shootout going on he continues yes. and then um he eventually gets shot four more times by the agents in the 1040s when he's actually he drops dead there outside the movie theater and people actually are like seeing what's going on apparently they were saying a lot of people are coming in they get keepsakes they were dipping newspapers and handkerchiefs in the pool of blood so they could say they had like his blood, uh, John Dillinger's blood, which again, this is like shows like the pop culture status this guy had. It's also kind of morbid too. I don't know why anyone would do that. Yeah, but like, this is also the the 30s, so whatever. I'm sure there's people out there right now. They're like, hey, look at this handkerchief, like hanging, you know, framed in my living room. That's well, they had that. Well, because remember, he, after he was um, killed, his body was put on public display at, at a morgue, and fifteen thousand people viewed. And they also made a bunch of death masks, which you can see pictures of. But also, uh, he's he's buried at a Crown Hill Cemetery in Indianapolis. And they keep on having to replace the uh, the headstone because the people keep on chipping pieces yeah. off at souvenirs. Yeah. They need to, like, constantly replace, like, replace it and everything. Isn't that crazy? It's just they want a piece of it. And this, I think the, it's on the fourth marker at this point. And now they kind of, like, have it, like, protected, too. So you can't really do it. Now, people know of John Dillinger, right? Don't they, didn't, like, the gun get named after him, right? The Dillinger? And then there's a movie with... um. What's his name? Um, Jack Sparrow. Yeah. Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp, yeah. So there's a whole... But yeah, he's, he's a pop culture icon. People hear the name John Dillinger, and they, they're they aware of it. At least, you may not know all the history about it. We just did a very brief uh, right there. But they still are aware of it. You know what I mean? Like, they, yep. that name rings a bell, without a doubt. Yep. And this is where Jagger Hoover, after this shooting, he tries to really switch the perception of his G-men, of the FBI agents. Like, we, us G-men, are the cool guys. This is where you have the advent of the Tracy comic strip. Yeah, um, he wants to make them seem as cool as Dillinger was. Exactly. And shortly thereafter, shortly when this is like kind of this is happening and Dillinger gets killed, you have a movie called G-Men that comes out. And they what they do is they get the actor that played Public Enemies movie. They get him to play now a police a officer, yeah, a good guy. guy. Yeah, it's yeah. like, come on, we're the cool ones. We're the cool ones. So shortly after John Dillinger gets killed, Babyface Nelson is announced, literally the next day, is announced as Public Enemy number one. Yeah, the, the next person, the next one. And it was weird. It's like, the, I, like, what do you think? I don't know if they were like... The FBI, I mean, when I say that, like, were they out to actually kill these guys or they have preferred to capture them? I feel like they just kind of gotten shootouts with all these people. I, you would assume they would want it, like, the right thing to do would be to capture them. But at the same time, you think about it, Jedgar Hoover is really trying to shift public perception. And public thinks it's cool. Not that I'm saying they're shooting people because it's cool, but you want to show your strength above yeah. the lawlessness. Yeah, I guess a lot of these people were not going to be taken alive either. Yeah. You know, so they're just going to try to shoot themselves out of it, I guess, yeah. But even like Hoover's Bureau of Investigation, like these guys were college educated. His entire FBI force was well-trained, well-educated. Ultimately, like the idea was like, we are the true people you should look up to, the good guys. But what's 
ironic here is that at first, in 1931, 1932, FBI cannot yet carry their own. They're not issued weapons. Uh, They have their own weapons. A lot of them bring their own guns to these shootouts. But these shootouts are happening with agents that have their personal Personal firearms. Yeah, personal firearms. Yeah, they're not issued firearms yet by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Which means there's no training with them either if they're not issued them. It's kind of crazy, right? Yeah, Yeah, these guys were more or less like uh, investigators. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. But Babyface Nelson is your next guy. Started at Age of Crime really early. He was about 13 years old. A lot of these guys actually started really early. Same thing with Dillinger. He started early as well. Actually, one of the first things Dillinger stole was a car when he was like 15 or 16 to impress a girl. Babyface Nelson, same premise. Uh, sentenced to jail, 1931 robbery. Then he escapes. He, um, he, he, that's where he met Dillinger. He actually worked exactly. with Exactly. He was part of Dillinger's gang. Yep. And part of Dillinger's escape. He helped him escape one of the times in prison. That's yep. what really gets him famous too. So he is known, obviously, Babyface Nelson, probably self-explanatory. He is given that moniker when he's really young. He was in and out of juvenile facilities. uh, He was short too, right? And they said he was 5'4 and weighed about 133 pounds and always looked young. Even when he was was young, he always looked young. So he got that moniker when he was literally like a teenager. That's when they sort of call him that. He didn't really necessarily like it. But birth name was Lester Joseph Gillis. Uh, He was born in Chicago, but later on, he winds up changing his name to Nelson. He marries a Polish woman in 1928, 20 years old. She's only 16. And after that, he kind of goes into the life of crime. Yeah, he's doing a lot of arm robberies, particularly like jewelry. Um, First, he's robbing like jewelry stores, right? Yeah. For the most part. So he's doing that. He's basically um, ties up to people with like tape and stuff like that. So originally, they're known as a tape bandits, him and his little band. And they get away with it. They steal $205,000 worth of jewelry. It's about $3.6 million today. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're pretty successful at first, and then he moves on to banks after that. One of the shootouts that he has during a bank robbery is um, is where he kills an FBI agent in a process. Yeah, that's when things change. Yeah. And that's he, when, it, yeah, that's when he's like, he's one of the public enemies, according to J. Edgar Hoover. Public enemy basically meant that your picture was in a newspaper and you were actually called the public enemy. And after Nelson is announced as the public enemy number one, he doesn't really stay public enemy number one for too long because he gets killed. Yeah, short-lived on the top. Yes. So he, he manages a the police for a few months, but they wound up catching up with him in 34, uh, November 27, 34. Uh, he was driving a stolen car with his wife, uh, who also kind of helped participate in a lot of his thefts. I'm surprised they didn't get that. Well, I guess it wasn't a whole love story of Bonnie and Clyde, but his wife here was also part of this. Anyway, he gets a stolen car. They're spotted by FBI agents. Nelson tries to drive away. The agents give chase. And then the cars stop at a roadblock and agents wind up shooting inside the car. He starts shooting back. He shoots another FBI agent, kills him. Then he shoots another FBI agent who winds up dying a few months. Yeah, it, it was a shootout. Like this is like yeah. the definition of like what a shootout is big time. Yeah. But you see this one, he was shot 17 times and he still continued driving. Him and his wife got away with 17 bullets. And he lives until the next day when he finally dies from his 17 bullets. Yeah, because it's not like they can like go to like a hospital. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? I can't imagine having 17 bullets and just like, all right, let's make a left up there, well, honey. Just like, trying to get away. I mean, that's it. It's probably, you know, at some point it's adrenaline until that runs out, right? I would think. Kind of crazy. So anyway, he is dead and his body's left in, um, on the stairs of a St. Peter Catholic Cemetery in Illinois. That's where I his wife leaves. I think body. there's like, there's a plaque there now, right? Yeah. I think I read somewhere. They have like a plaque. So, you know, it's again part of Americana. The wife kind of leaves him there. The wife winds up going to prison, but she doesn't yeah. stay in prison that long. Well, he had two children. A lot of, you know, they're not going to, you know, they just, she was very young when she was with him. I think that was taken into account also. Like he said before, she was like 16. Yep. And once he's killed, a new public enemy number one is Charles Pretty Boy Floyd. It's like next. <laughs> Charles Pretty Boy Floyd, few things about him. His big claim to fame, I shouldn't say claim to fame, but. Notoriety. Um, his notoriety, right? Yeah, right. Uh, he took part in trying to break out another gangster, Frank Nash, while he was being returned uh, to a U.S. prison in Kansas. And it was this shooting where FBI agents were killed partially by Charles Pretty Boy Floyd that led to the federal government allowing FBI agents to officially carry guns and have training known as Kansas City Massacre in 1933. Okay, so what do we know about Charles Pretty Boy Floyd? He's an interesting one. He's looked at like sometimes as a you know notorious like evil person. Other times he's seen as kind of like a tra- uh, like a tragic figure. Or yep. recently he's been portrayed as kind of like a victim of the Great Depression. Like you know he had no choice to do what he was basically did. You know, but um yeah he was born in Georgia in 1904. His family moved to Oklahoma. They were poor. Pretty soon he's his um getting in- involved in robbing banks, payroll robbery. Right. He served. He's in, he's he's in and out of jail. Right, doing these sorts of things. And then when he's in Kansas City, that's when he meets up with the other like um people from the underworld, the mobsters basically. Mm-hmm. And again, he gets back into doing more and more of these um bank robberies and stuff like that. And that's when he got the nickname Pretty Boy. Because someone one of someone described one of the uh, robbers as a pretty boy with apple cheeks, and then he became pretty boy Floyd after yep. that. Whatever it is, it works. Again, payroll robberies, bank robberies, so on and so forth. He goes to prison. After he turns from prison, his big thing is he's a hired gun for bootleggers in the Midwest. So when they're moving illegal liquor, he's the you know he's riding shotgun probably. He's, literally. Yeah, he's, he's one that he's going to be involved in exactly. He's a hired hand. So he becomes known for his reckless use of machine guns. You know, so Floyd began robbing banks in Ohio initially with a bunch of small time gangsters. So then they moved to other territories. Um, there's a big crime spree in the third that happens in Oklahoma that he is part of. What makes him popular with the newspapers as well, as he destroys or rather robs these banks, he is allegedly also destroying mortgage papers at many of these banks that he robbed. So by making sure that each bank he robs, he goes and burns and destroys mortgage papers, he technically liberated many debt-ridden citizens. Because it's not backed up anywhere, yeah. Yeah. They just be like, no, I already paid off my mortgage. No, I paid... And there's like nothing they can really do about it. And because of that, the Oklahoma locals actually kind of shielded him when he was getting through, you know, his robberies. They're like, this guy's kind of like a Robin Hood. So we're going to just let him be. And I, mean, um, I read too, they were doing stuff like that on purpose so that they would get support from the locals. So they would get good press. Like they got, they kind of saw what was going on, like how the press is portraying them. So a lot of them were smart. Like if I do this, I'll get the public support. I mean, that can always help me somewhere down the line. And also, they knew just to stick it to the G-Men, too. Yeah. That they were still be considered, like, cooler, whatever Exactly. Pretty Boy Floyd is public enemy number one. There's a $23,000 bounty offered for his capture, dead or alive, which is kind of adds to, I guess, our prior question, or previous question of, like, they want to shoot him or not. It didn't matter at this it point. It didn't matter, yeah. They're just like, as long as he's not 
around anymore. They don't really care. Yeah, so he went into hiding with um, with one of his girlfriends. It was an Ohio police chief that winds up getting information that some individuals are hiding outside of town, and the authorities wind up finding him. He winds up escaping. They catch up to him, and as usually is the case here, there's a shootout. He is shot twice. His last words were, I'm done for. You've hit me twice. So yeah, the FBI agents actually try to get an ambulance, though. Like the two FBI agents that shot him. This is October 1934. He winds up dying 15 minutes after, uh, you know, he was shot. So that's that. But they said that a record number of gatherers, like thousands, attended Floyd's funeral. Well, yeah, it's just like the same way with, with Dylan. Like he was, they were popular. People wanted to go and... I guess show the respects or they just wanted to go and see this famous person because they were such like icons of the time. People knew who they were like celebrities, basically. Yeah. Machine Gun Kelly, who, you know, who was Machine Gun Kelly? Um, bootlegger, mostly bank robber, kidnapper. He's the guy that actually went into the kidnapping game a little bit more. Yeah. They That's probably what he's be- most, n- most known for, right? Yep. Kidnapping the business tycoon, um, Charles F. Ruchel in 19 in 1933 and they collected a two hundred thousand dollar ransom which is a huge amount of money but the fbi is uh fancy these days with with their ransom money so we'll get into that in a second yes. right so bootlegger bank robber kidnapper machine gun kelly uh born in 1895 tennessee involved in bootlegging really as a teenager from the beginning throughout 1920s very profitable illegal enterprise for him um he tried to do some legitimate work it didn't really work for him so yeah, he, he tried going to school but he just couldn't get along with people and like the yeah he went to college yeah he yeah. didn't want to go to college it just it wasn't for him and he was making a lot of money by selling illegal liquor so he's like yeah. school well, money yeah, exactly money. yeah after selling illegal liquor uh he's wind up selling it on a native american reservation then he's caught selling illegal liquor, again, prohibition. So he winds up going to prison. While he's in prison, he makes several friends that are bank robbers. And he's like, oh, maybe I should just rob some banks, right? Why not? After his release, he goes to Minnesota. And with his girlfriend, Catherine Thorne, they wind up getting married. They basically reunite with some of his buddies from jail. And they're like, all right, let's do some bank robberies. His wife is the one that helps build his reputation. She's the one that she's reading the newspaper. She's reading about all these pretty boy Floyds and everybody else. And so she buys the machine gun for her husband and kind of starts calling him Machine Gun Machine Kelly. Kelly yeah. And it catches, you know, it's like he becomes known as Machine Gun Kelly, but she's like proud of it. It's like, yeah, that one, that guy's mine, you know? So they make several attempts at kidnapping, but their biggest one, as you mentioned before, they kidnapped this wealthy Oklahoma oil man, Charles Orshell. Yeah, Orshell. Like, it was in 1933 and they kidnap him and they actually are like, they keep him blindfolded the whole time and they get a ransom of, like I said, $200,000, which is about $4.5 million today. They hold him at, um, I guess, the wife's mother's and stepfather's farm. Mm-hmm. And what the guy, even though Rochelle, even though he's blindfolded, he kind of makes notes of a lot of evidence. Like remembers background sounds, counting footsteps, you know, um, where where the people like touched and stuff. You could hear them like yep. picking up like a shovel or whatever. And then they're actually able, this all proves valuable for the FBI. They're on, they go back and they're able to like use this stuff to um, find more evidence to prove that it was Machine Gun Kelly and his associates that did yep. this kidnapping. And they also, the FBI, they do pay the $200,000 uh, ransom money, but all of the serial numbers are recorded, and the FBI is really persistent in making sure that they are tracking the serial numbers. So they're like, okay, we know who's spending this, and they basically get him fairly quickly. They're hiding places raided. They're all arrested. Yeah, he basically um, screams, don't shoot, G-Man, don't shoot, as he surrenders to the agents and stuff like that. Him and his wife are arrested. Mostly him, obviously. He gets kind of the blame for but, all this. But you see what happened? Though? Like, he gets arrested, but the same. Th- it kind of doesn't make big news. But the same time he gets arrested is when the Dillinger game breaks out of prison. So all this yeah. stuff is kind of happening at the same time. That's what you have to understand too. It's not like it's like chronological order. 
all yeah. this stuff is happening like around the same time. So it's just- yeah, they said it was like the, just lawlessness in the Midwest. You know, yeah. that's why the actual newspapers called this like public enemies versus G-Men. Like this was yeah. like everyone's like, what's happening now? You know, it's like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. All these stories happen at the same time. <laughs> that's oh, great. The Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, after he is arrested, he is mocked in the newspapers as Pop Gun Kelly. He is sent to Alcatraz. You know, obviously Al Capone was there. So we did a podcast on Alcatraz a year, yes. you know, years ago. Well, well um, he stays there from the 30s until the 50s. In the 50s, he winds up getting sick. So he's moved to a different prison. Obviously, Alcatraz winds up being closed by then in Kansas. And he winds up dying from uh, of heart failure in 1954. He's one of these ones that actually lived out his life somewhat. Like he's not, he doesn't get shot up, you know? Which brings us to the last two, which kind of are separate, but at the same time, not. Yeah, once again, that there's probably so much um, stuff on, right? Like we were really just going to do, we could just do just a podcast on these two. Yeah. And that's kind of how we started. We're like, we could do this. Yeah. And then we started to like make it more of like a branch out a little bit more. But yeah, a whole bunch of Bonnie and Clyde, right? Yep. You love this time period, so. I do, but I mean, I mean, this is kind of, I feel like everyone knows this, but Bonnie Parker, Clyde Barrow, they met in Texas when she was only 19. She actually was already married to another guy at the time. She was married when she was 16. That guy was in prison at the time that she met Clyde. So shortly after they met, Barrow was in prison for robbery. Bonnie Parker visited him every single day and wound up smuggling a gun into prison to help him escape. But he winds up getting caught and sent back to jail. So she's like she's completely in love with this guy. Yeah, she kills for him, literally, because they actually, don't think they, they kill nine people, right? Yep. Nine police officers and four civilians. So now 13 people they kill. Yeah, because once Barrow's paroled in 1932, they immediately kind of get together and just wind up starting this life of crime together. For the next two years, the couple basically winds up teaming up with a bunch of other accomplices. So there was a whole gang involved here. It wasn't just Bonnie and Clyde. No, they were part of a larger gang, yeah. Well, what so, made him popular, too, is the fact that she was a woman. Yeah. That kind of increased that fame. Committing the crimes. It wasn't that she was just a wife. She was, like, active participant in the crimes yeah. with, that, with him. So yeah. they were, they were good-looking young people. She was a woman. There was, they took all these playful pictures with guns and cigars and all these other things. Uh, they would, like, leave them behind. So they were released in newspapers. So people saw them as, like, this glamorous young couple that is overcoming, you know, the Great Depression. It's a part of pop culture even today. I mean, look at those old Western photos or, like, those 19, you can go to those places, right? And you can dress up in that stuff. Or they give you, you dress it up, you dress it up, you look like these Bonnie and Clyde, you know what I mean? Like yep. the machine guns in your hands and stuff like that. And at the same time, they're also, another thing I kind of claim to fame is they, they were very difficult to capture. I mean, like, they just kept on escaping. Every time, anyone in their gang that was doing stuff got caught, they somehow managed to escape until finally... The Texas prison system hires a retired Texas Ranger, Frank Hammer, and as like a special investigator, like track them down. It takes this guy three months to kind of track him down. But by this time, you know, they're robbing banks and so forth. But when I was looking into this, they didn't really spend that much time, that much time robbing banks. So while most sort of like movies portray them as like these big yeah, bank robbers. The movies from the 60s, that's what got them like re-put in the public eye, definitely. Exactly. But they said that they robbed less than 15 banks. And uh, some banks, they were robbed more than once, but they usually got away with very little money. In one case, they only got $80 from the bank robbery. The few successful bank robberies that are associated with them were actually more committed by Clyde and his gang. Raymond Hamilton is another guy that was in the gang. Bonnie would basically drive the getaway car, if anything. 
Like she, it wasn't really the two of them committing the crimes. It was more no, like she wasn't running in there saying, "Hands up, it's Bonnie and Clyde." That's the type of stuff. Uh, you know, yeah, it didn't happen. While they were on the run, they actually mostly robbed small grocery stores, gas stations, because uh, the risk was much lower to get away from those. And also, the take from these were obviously very low. They're they're robbing a gas station. Yeah, they're, they're doing it just. It's like kind of just like a job. You know, yeah, like, literally. That's every, how they got by. Every, every day, that's how they're getting by day to day is stealing. Yeah. from these gas stations, from these convenience stores. Exactly. But that's what allowed the Texas Rangers to catch up with them because they just need this money to get by. And the frequency of these robberies made Bonnie and Clyde easier to track. There was, you know, it was almost like they couldn't settle anywhere for too long. They were continuously just robbing, 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 robbing. And that's the trail that these, the Texas Rangers actually followed to get them. Well, approximately 9.15, right? On May 34, they were, um, is when they were actually ambushed. So it's basically, like you said before, they were following them. And they were playing out where they were and they actually like a- ambushed them. They knew they were going to be coming down this road. A posse of like basically police cars concealed in the bushes. And they were about ready to give up until they heard of a car coming like high speed. That's what the report says anyway. And then they positioned their trucks on the road that morning. They hoped they would be able to maybe like make them stop or whatever. But then as soon as the vehicle came by, they just started to um, open fire. Right? And uh, Barrow was probably shot in the head and died instantly from um, some of the first shots. And they just, they fired 130 rounds, emptying their weapons into the car. Nuts. And now you remember, Bonnie and Clyde had several bullet wounds that they've had anywhere over the years, right? So any one of those wounds could have been like their cause of death. They're not sure exactly what wounds killed them, but they were already pretty shot up from other shootouts over the years, the injuries. But they, they, you can see pictures of the car. It is just like riddled with bullet holes. You can actually see their bodies too. Like the picture is like, again, before they, Hoover, they wanted these stories out there. So here, here, here's the car shot up. Here's their bodies, right? She's hunched over the seat. He's you know, falling out of the car dead. And it's like, this is what happens if you go against the law. You know, the G-men will find you. This is what's going to happen to you. Also, another thing, again, we're talking 1930s. It was very scandalous because they were not married. And, yeah. you know, today it's like, okay. But she was married to another guy, obviously, as I mentioned before. The guy was still in prison when he found out that his wife, because she was still married to him, was actually shot. So when she was in that car getting shot up, she still had her wedding ring to her husband who's in prison yeah. while she's with Clyde this whole time, which again, so that kind of added to like this fact, like, you know, they were married. It made him even worse. Besides that, I mean, when you start studying these guys, again, people were fascinated by this at the time, but they were very talented. And I don't mean like shooting people, musically talented. They said that Clyde loved music, loved singing and playing guitar, taught himself how to play saxophone, really wanted a career in music. And then Parker loved music growing up in Texas. She also loved the stage, performing school pageants, talent shows, you know, sang Broadway hits and country favorites, um, very pretty young woman. So both of them were more like artists that just, you know, Great Depression got in the way and they were just like, we need to survive. So let's do this. They also had trouble walking. You see that? Well, what happened was um, Clyde, he didn't have a good time in prison. So apparently he was like sexually assaulted several times. Yes, by, gar- by guards too. By- and, he, and he eventually killed one of them. He crushed yeah. the guy's skull in. But then an inmate who was already there for life sentence took the blame for it and said, no, I did it. And people knew he didn't, but it was kind of like a whatever. Yeah. But then Clyde actually had two of his toes amputated so he could avoid hard labor. So that was the thing. So that kind of forced him to have like a limp for the rest of his life. Well, and she had issues too, right? At one point, she did not see like a detour sign on the road and what, that was under construction. She missed the turn and plunged down into like a riverbed. And they said that car battery basically spilled acid all over so, her yeah, right yeah. leg. She, she had like severe burns and scars yeah. on her leg. Yeah. 
I did read about that. The nearby farm, someone like threw a bunch of baking soda on it. And that was the real reason that like she was able to really keep her leg. Plus they got a lot of gunshot wounds. Well, yeah, they have a ton of gunshot wounds and obviously. And even when they were, um, after they were dead, their bodies got a huge bunch of attention. It was towed the car into town. And then like people from all over the place and they heard about it, they started coming to this town just to get a view of the bodies and stuff like that and wait for the bodies to be identified so that, but like the fathers and stuff. And it became like a, like a big thing. Like they ran out of like food in the town because they couldn't support all these people coming in that wanted to, you know, get a glimpse of Bonnie and Clyde. Did you see that? It was a problem with trying to get him embalmed. The coroner report detailed 17 holes in Clyde's body and 26 holes in Bonnie's body. Officially, there might have been more. That's just, you know, the Undertaker figured out. The Undertaker assigned to preserve the bodies for the funeral found it was like impossible. There's so many holes in him that at different places that it was difficult to actually embalm fluid, like put fluid in them. And that's also what made people kind of upset too, because they're like, you know, they really have to shoot these two this much. You know, these are the outlaws and, you know, they were young, right? And they just got shot up by the cops. So there was a lot of like public outcry too against it. Like, why would you do this to these kids basically? Did you have to do this? Because it was an ambush. They just recognized a car and they were like, all right, let's open fire, you know? Anyway, after this, things kind of uh, more or less wind up coming down. Once the prohibition ends in 33, then you have the really kickstarting of the New Deal programs during the Great Depression. That kind of takes the people's mind off of life or crime so much. Some, like, I mean, you're still having crime, obviously, but it's not going to be to that It's extent. more organized crime. It's not it's like a, gangsters. Yeah, you're not going to see these, like, um, these outlaws as outlaws. much. Exactly, yeah. They're, yep. they're doing other things. I think Bonnie and Clyde kind of ends that too because people are seeing... If you do that, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. And from that point forward, you know, it kind of transitions where it's more organized crime, Chicago, major metropolitan areas, this gangster stuff. You might say that Jagger Hoover and his G-Men won. What they did too is they made bank robbering and kidnapping federal offenses. Yep. So that that also like just put that. I mean, these were all happened within two months. Bonnie and Clyde were killed, right? Dillinger was killed. Pretty Boy Floyd was killed. Babyface Nelson. So this all happened in like three months of each other. Yeah. So all these like, you know, famous outlaws are all getting killed. And like, maybe this is not the way to go. G-men are doing something right. Maybe Especially the career criminals, because they're like, all right, this, that's not what you do. You have has to be organized, has to be smart. So the career criminals do that. And the people who were just considered doing it are like, you know, doing uh, better because of New Deal programs or they're just like, it's not worth it. And then what winds up happening is the G-men become so popular that once the United States starts getting involved in World War II, you know, as the public face of the war of crime, like there's Hoover becomes the ultimate G-men in public imagination. Like there's comic books about G-men and Hoover. Yeah. So President FDR actually gives the FBI a mandate to investigate fascism, communism in the United States. And that's where Hoover becomes who he becomes, which is like this massive domestic surveillance, inappropriate wiretapping kind of guy. Yeah. Communism, all that stuff. Yeah. Yep. But that's that's a whole another podcast. Whole other thing on him. Yeah. But oh, I didn't think hopefully we were able to give a little bit of a background, a little bit of background information. I said there's a ton of stuff out there. Each one of these people have movies based on them, have documentaries, probably have podcasts just based on them that are like 100 episodes long. They're interesting. I would give them that, you know, I'm not going to glorify them, but definitely, you know, these are true crimes and true crimes are popular. Yes. And the story. And the story. That's right. Anyway, thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once more. We do appreciate it. If you need to find us, you can find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. Please make sure you click that like or subscribe button and leave us a review if you like us. Why not? And I guess that's it. We'll see you guys next week. Stay safe, everybody.
hope everyone enjoyed our podcast. And if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.